0: All right. If you want to sign up for Men's and Ladies Bible Study, just sign up in the back, um, and then it's tomorrow, 645, right here at the church. Uh, so we're looking at John chapter 11 today, and we'll be reading from verses 1 to 44. It says, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her, mo- and her uh, sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Then Jesus told him plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas called the twins said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone was against it. came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Well, uh, sometimes I think I get a little bit too competitive when I'm playing board games, and my wife can attest to this. Um, And I have trouble with certain games, and certain games that kind of have arbitrary rules. Uh, Like one that I have trouble with is scategories. Uh, If you haven't played categories, it's a pretty simple game. There's a dice that has all the letters of the alphabet on it. You roll the dice, and then there's different categories, and depending on uh, the categories, you have to think of a word that starts with whatever letter is rolled for that category. For example, so say you roll a B, uh, then the category might be things you eat. So you might write down bread, or bacon, or beets, or broccoli. Uh, you might, if the category might be things that are found in the water, and you might write down boat or barnacles or something like that. But inevitably, every time I play, there's one person that kind of stretches the rules of what's acceptable. And you'll have like things that are found in the church, and they'll say like bunions, and you'll be like, how are there bunions in the church? And they'll say, well, you know, people come to the church, and I'm sure there's been someone that came to a church somewhere that had a bunion at some point. Like, okay, I guess. Then it's like things that are found in the doctor's office, and they'll be like, bread. Like, how's there bread in the doctor's office? Well, the doctor needs some lunch, and at some point, I'm sure he brought bread for a sandwich for lunch. Like, okay, okay, sure, sure. You know, and, and maybe you challenge the first time or the second time, but you get to a point where it's like, I mean, I'm telling myself, it's just a game. I'm not going to, I'm just going to let it go. Just going to let it go. You know, and it happens over and over and over again. You have no idea what they're even talking about with these categories. You know, and then you get to the end and, and they're like, I won. I'm like, yeah, because you said there's bunions in the church. There's no bunions in the church. I have trouble with things like that when there's no rules or the rules are arbitrary and I think sometimes life feels a little bit like that. I think sometimes it feels like life doesn't have any rules. It seems like life is kind of arbitrary, it's like you can do good things, do the right things and sometimes you suffer just as much as someone does the wrong things. Specifically when it comes to suffering, it seems sometimes like suffering is pointless. Seems like sometimes it doesn't have any meaning. And it seems arbitrary in the way that suffering is sometimes dispensed. I, I think it's one of the biggest problems, the biggest problems that Christianity has ever had to answer. It's the problem of how do we deal with a God who is good and is powerful, but they're still suffering. The question in many people, the way that many people phrase this is: if God is good, then why? And then fill in the blank. And you can fill that, that blank in a number of ways. If God is good, then why do people go hungry? If God is good, then why did kids get cancer? If God is good, then why are there natural disasters that take people's homes and livelihoods? If If God is good, then why did my spouse leave me? If, if God is good, why did I lose my job? It's the biggest question that the biggest problem that Christianity has had to answer and deal with is if if God is good, then why does he allow these things to happen? Now, people who are atheists or unbelievers, agnostic maybe, would maybe say, well, maybe God isn't all that powerful. Maybe he's not able to prevent the things that happen. You know, this is, you know, kind of in the school of deism where they believe that God just kind of, Created the world and just let things go. And now he's not really capable of stopping the bad things that are happening. So they might say, well, God isn't powerful. And then on the other hand, others might say, well, God is powerful, but he's not good. He's powerful. He could stop it, but for whatever reason, he chooses not to stop it. And so he's not good. Theologians throughout the ages have kind of have tried to come up with answers to these questions. And when they come up with a defense uh, to these accusations against God, so to speak, it's called a theodicy. And in the theodicy, what what theologians will try to do is try to defend the fact that God is both good and powerful, and yet still people suffer. Uh, One dictionary defines theodicy this way. uh, The vindication of divine goodness and providence in in view of the existence of evil. So in a theodicy, again, theologians argue that God can be both good and powerful, even in the presence of suffering and evil. So this passage we're looking at today, John chapter 11, it's one of my favorite passages in the Bible. And one it's one of my favorite passages because it's so powerful and there's so much meaning in this passage. Uh, it's a passage I usually preach at funerals, and it's... It, It's a passage that's rich because suffering meets the Son of God. Jesus Christ uh, meets people at their point of, of deepest need. And I think what Jesus does here in this passage is through his actions and through his words, he kind of provides us with a theodicy of God. He shows us in this passage how God can be both good and powerful at the same time. And I think if we come to grips with what Jesus does here I think it can change how we view our, uh, how we live our lives and specifically how we deal with suffering that seems arbitrary or senseless. So when we think about this question if God is good then why fill in the blank I think we can break this down into two questions. The first is God good text tells us in verses 5 to 6. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now, on the surface, what Jesus does here is at best indifferent and callous, and at worst, hateful. I mean, think about this. Mary and Martha call to Jesus, essentially crying out for help. Come, help us. Our brother is sick. This is the Jesus who had healed the blind, healed the lame, multiplied the loaves and the fishes. He had done so many miracles before and they call out to him, come, our brother is sick. Jesus just stays where he's at. He doesn't come. He stays for two days until Lazarus has died. This isn't lost on Mary and Martha. They both say essentially the same thing in verses 21 to 32. They say, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And cloaked in that statement, I think what they're really saying is, Jesus, if you cared about me, if you cared about us, you would have been here. But John wants to make something very clear. He says at the beginning of the passage I just read in verse 5, that Jesus didn't have any animosity toward Mary and Martha, Lazarus. In fact, it says that he had a special love for them. He loved their family deeply. And so it wasn't that he... Didn't care about them. He loved them deeply. But there was a different reason. Namely in this passage. It was so that God would be glorified. People's faith would be strengthened. And so he has a specific reason why he delays. And I think that this shows us. That delay does not equal desertion. Just because God delays. Doesn't mean that he's deserted us. I often drive my wife to work. And uh, pick her up from work, and I'm usually fairly punctual, get there usually before she's ready to go, Uh, but imagine one day, it's 15 minutes after I'm supposed to be there, and I'm not there. She texts me, says, hey, are you close? No response. 15 minutes later, she texts me again, hey, are you okay? No response. She calls me, no response, and then two hours go by. She's sitting there waiting for me to pick her up, and I don't respond to any text message. I don't respond to any calls. There's a couple of things that she could think in that situation. She could think, well, he must have abandoned me. He must have gone and found somebody else, and he must have decided he didn't want to be with me anymore. Of course, she wouldn't think that. Of course, she would know that there must have been some reason, some really good reason why I'm not responding to My text messages or calls and why I'm not there to pick her up. Probably, of course, be worried that something happened. And and those are the choices that we have when God delays. We can say, God has deserted me. God has forgotten about me. God doesn't care about me anymore. Or we can trust that God must have a reason. That God must have a plan that's deeper than what we see. Delay does not equal desertion. Just because God doesn't and hasn't answered our prayers yet doesn't mean that he's forgotten about us doesn't mean that he's not going to come through for us see for those of us who are believers you know we we get focused on the here and now and our our lives kind of sometimes seem so intense and so long but really for us as believers our suffering always has an expiration date our suffering is always temporary you think about the Apostle Paul, and he endured so much suffering, more suffering than any of us probably could even imagine. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, he describes that suffering as being light and momentary. I, mean, I can't believe that he would think that, uh, given what we know about what he went through. And he calls his suffering light and momentary. Believers, we can't mistake God's delay for his desertion. He hasn't forgotten about us. He hasn't given up on us. And if he's delayed in coming to our aid, he must have a very good reason for delay. So we see that God's delay doesn't necessarily equal desertion, but there's something else we see that I think is is also important. And we see that God isn't content with the delay. Jesus isn't content with the delay. In verses 33 and 38, it says that upon seeing the weeping of his friends and the Jews when he goes to the tomb, uh, it says in the text that he was moved. Now, that word for moved is probably not the best translation, but it's hard to kind of communicate what they were talking about in Greek and translate it to English. Uh, But this word for moved often indicated, uh, associated with anger, and it was literally used about animals that were kind of snorting in anger. So Jesus is is angry in his soul at what is happening. He's angry at the toll that sin and death has wrecked upon these people that he loves. But he's not only angry, he's also sad. John 11.35 is the the, the, the shortest verse in the whole Bible, but one of the most profound, it says that Jesus wept. Jesus, the Son of God, cried because he saw the pain that sin and death had caused and the effects that it had had on the people that he loved. Now, what's remarkable about this is Jesus knows what's going to happen. Jesus knows that in just a very short time, he's going to raise Lazarus from the grave. The death in this case is going to be defeated, that their mourning is going to turn to joy. And yet still, he's not content with the delay. He's angry. He's sad because he sees What sin and death has done to those he loved. Jesus isn't content with the delay. God isn't content with the delay. He allows things to happen in our lives, but he's not content with those things happening. Several months ago, uh, we took my son Paul uh, to the pediatrician, and he was, uh, I think, a little bit under a year at that point, and he needed to have some kind of routine blood work done. And it was just a terrible experience, Because we had to basically help the pediatrician hold him down as they drew his blood. And he has no idea what's happening there. You know, he he can't understand what's happening. And we know as parents, we knew first that it was going to be temporary. We knew this wasn't going to harm him long term. It was just going to be a short window where there would be pain. We knew that this was going to ultimately be for his benefit. And we knew that he had to have this blood work done. And yet still, as parents, it broke our hearts. And I think that's the way that God sees our suffering. Sometimes there's things that need to happen in our lives that he allows to happen. Things that are for our good and his glory. But in that moment, it breaks his heart. It breaks his heart to see us suffering, even though it's a part of God's plan. God is good. God cares for his children, and this passage shows us that. The Jews themselves, ironically, come to the same conclusion. They say, see how Jesus loved him. In other words, see, Jesus is good. He does actually care for Lazarus. But then some of them question again and go back to that same dilemma. Okay, if God is good, then why didn't he do so? Jesus is good, why didn't he do something? And so they ask the question, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Yes, Jesus has good intentions. He cared about Lazarus, but why didn't he do something then? Was he not capable? And so we're led again to the second question that Jesus answers, is God powerful? In the book of John so far, we've seen six miracles or six signs. The first, the turning of water into the wine, Second, the healing of the official son. Third, the healing at the pool of Bethesda. Four, the feeding of the 5,000. Five, walking on water. Six, the healing of the man born blind. And now this is the seventh miracle in the book of John. And remember, in the scripture, often the number seven indicates completion or fullness. And in this miracle, Jesus kind of ups the ante in terms of what he does here. This is very different than the other miracles that Jesus does. And that's indicated by the fact of how people respond to Jesus. They're like, if Mary and Martha say, if, if you had been here, you could have done something. Now, Martha seems to express some faith that Jesus still could do something. But even in, at the end, when Jesus wants to take the stone away, she's like, he, he's stinking by now. I and mean, what good is it to open up the tomb? And, and to many who are here, it was like, it's too late. I mean, yes, Jesus could open the eyes of the blind. Yes, Jesus could feed the 5,000. But this man is dead. There's a Jewish belief that was attested to in later Judaism. uh, But this belief that uh, after someone died, the soul of that person would hover over the body for three days and then wait to see if it could enter that body. And then after three days, it would leave. Well, here, Lazarus has been dead for four days. So he's he's not coming back, at least in the way that they thought. And yet Jesus opens up the tomb and he says, or has them open up the tomb and he cries out in a loud voice, Lazarus comes out. And he does this in contrast to the way that ancient magicians and sorcerers operated. They would often uh, cast spells and have uh, elaborate incantations and potions. But Jesus simply speaks the word and does what nobody else could do in raising Lazarus from the dead. And we see something else also in the passage. We think about the way that they mourned. And uh, they mourned very differently than the way that we mourn today. Now if somebody dies and uh, you go to the calling hours for that person. We don't, in, in our culture, and this isn't the case in every culture in the world today, but in our culture, oftentimes we don't like other people to see us cry. And so you go to the calling hours and, you know, you know, we talk about people trying to hold it together. You know, they have all these visitors, they're trying to hold it together, and, and emotionally they're, they're a wreck, but they're trying to hold it together. And so you might come to a calling hour and not really see a lot of crying, and if you do see a lot of see crying, it's kind of more reserved, quiet. Just that's just a cultural thing that we that we have here. And also, when we think about mourning in our day, mourning is very limited in time. Uh, so someone passes away, then a few days later you have calling hours, and then maybe maybe you have the funeral the same day, or a memorial service, or maybe have it at a future day, but. It's a very limited time frame. Maybe it's one or two days of actual mourning. It's very different in the ancient world. There were seven days that were prescribed for intense mourning, and then there were 30 days that were prescribed for what was called light mourning. Also, it was not emotionally reserved like our calling hours and funerals sometimes are. In fact, uh, poor families were often even expected to hire two flute players and one professional wailing woman to come to the, the funerals. And uh, this this family, uh, given some of the evidence in the text, they were probably uh, not the poorest of, of people. They probably were people of some means, and so they probably had a lot more than one wailing woman, a lot more than two flute players. And in the way that they mourn, there would often be frequent outbursts of screaming and wailing and, and, and playing of, uh, of these musical instruments, and it, this would happen for days, and so we're, we're four days into it, and so they're still in that period of intense mourning, and I can just imagine Jesus going to the tomb uh, with Mary and Martha and the Jews, and I can just imagine just kind of a crazy scene there. I mean, we don't know for sure, but given what we know about their mourning, you can imagine people you know, screaming loudly, maybe the flutes playing, these wailing women you know, screaming out. And you hear Jesus, and here's Jesus with all of that noise, all of those voices of death. And, and then it says in the text that Jesus cries out with a loud voice, and he says, Lazarus, come forth. And I think what he's doing there is he's rebuking death all of these voices of death are coming against him all of the effects of death are confronting him and in one phrase he's rebuking death the decay that had occurred in Lazarus body is reversed the breath comes back into his lungs and he gets up from the grave and walks out but i think this is a good story I think it's a helpful story, but I don't think it's the ultimate story. I think that this story points us to what is going to happen in just a short time. points us to Jesus' own death and resurrection. Jesus is on the road to Jerusalem. Just after this, it says the, uh, the Jews are plotting to kill Jesus. And eventually they're going to have their way. But in this moment with Lazarus, Jesus rebukes death. And death is held at bay. But just in a short time, death is going to rear its ugly head. And death is going to overtake Jesus as he's beaten, brutalized, hung on a cross, and then thrown into the grave. But three days later, we know he rises from the grave in victory and in life. And in the process, he rebuked death once and for all. The book of Hebrews says this, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver uh, all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. The The resurrection changes everything because it means that as believers we no longer have an expiration date. It means as believers, we no longer have to live just for this life. We're living for the next. And that's why this passage is so powerful, especially in the midst of suffering, especially in the midst of loss. Jesus says, or or, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says this. Jesus says, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Death no longer had to be viewed as an ending point, as a transition. Then in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that was from John chapter 11, it says this, for this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable body puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The resurrection changes everything. We no longer have an expiration date. We can live in the hope of eternal life. The resurrection shows us that God is powerful. J.R.R. Tolkien uh, talked about this idea of what he called a catastrophe when he's talking about a EU catastrophe, he's talking about an EU catastrophe. And he, he gets that word from the word euangelion, which means good news, and the, talks about the good catastrophe or the joyful catastrophe. And he talks about that being stories that we've all heard of something really bad that happens and how the hero of the story appears to be defeated, but then through that defeat comes out victorious and he talks about those stories that we've all heard and you know read in books and seen on television and in movies about these stories that kind of that tug at our heartstrings how the victor through defeat or, or the hero through defeat wins victory but he also talks about a you catastrophe a U, of you catastrophes the story of stories and he says that the 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 stories that we know in literature all point to the ultimate story, the good news of the gospel. He says these stories in literature have the ability to kind of pluck at our heartstrings, but the true story, the true catastrophe, has the ability not only to pluck at our heartstrings, but to bring our hearts back to life and bring us joy that's never-ending. And I think this story that we read today is a catastrophe, and it points us to the gospel. It points us to the story of Jesus' death and resurrection that can give us life and joy that never ends. Because we see in this passage that God is good. He cares about the people. He's powerful. He can defeat death. But we see this also in the cross. In the cross, he declared once and for all that God is good. God loves people That his love is unstoppable. And then in the resurrection, he declared once and for all that God is powerful. That he has the power over sin and death. And that death is defeated. And one day it will be done away with. Praise the Lord for the hope of the gospel. Praise the Lord for the resurrection of Christ. It shows us that God is powerful. But I think there's a point where the rubber meets the road. And I think it's what Jesus says to Martha in this passage. She says, Jesus says, your brother will rise again. She doesn't disagree with him. She gives him a spiritual answer. She says, I know that he will rise again in the last day. That's a spiritual answer. It was to her perhaps more of a theory, a hope. Something that was way off in the future. But Jesus responds to her and says, I am the resurrection and the life. I think what he wants to communicate to her is, I'm the resurrection and the life in the future, but I'm also the resurrection and the life now. I'm good and I'm powerful in the future, but I'm also good and I'm also powerful right here, right now. And I think as Christians, sometimes what we do is we think about the, the power of Christ, the goodness of Christ, we think about as the future. And we all rejoice in the hope that we have of, of one day when we die, being raised to new life. And that's something we hope in. But let's not forget that God is good. And God is powerful in our lives today. We can experience the resurrection in the life today in our own lives. What does that mean for us? It means that we can trust in the fact that God is good. There's nothing in our lives that's outside of the purview of what God has allowed. Doesn't mean that God enjoys everything that's happening. There's some things in our life that are tough. Maybe break God's heart. Maybe even cause God to be angry. But God wouldn't allow them to happen in our life if they weren't for our good, for his glory. So we can hold on to the fact that God is good. We can also hold on to the fact that God is powerful. There's nothing in our lives that's too great for our God. He's the God who spoke the worlds into existence, the God who calls dead men and women to life. There's nothing that's too great for our God. There's nothing that's too big for him. And we can hold on to that as we're facing difficulties in this life. The resurrection changes everything. In his book, The Pleasures of God, uh, John Piper uh, shares a story from the epi- from uh, George Mueller's life. George Mueller uh, was uh, someone who founded a number of orphanages in England, and uh, there's a number of books that have been written about him, and he has an incredible story about how he just kind of relied on God to provide for his every need as he was serving children in England. Um, but... It was, it was February 6, 1870, and George Mueller's wife, Mary, died of rheumatic fever. They had been married for 39 years, and remarkably, he worked up the strength to be able to preach his fun- her funeral sermon. And he chose for that occasion to preach on Psalm 119, verse 68. It says, you are good and do good. His three points were these. Number one, the Lord was good and did good in giving her to me. Number two, the Lord was good and did good and so leaving her to me. Three, the Lord was good and did good in taking her from me. Under the third point, he recounts how he prayed for her during her illness. He said, yes, my father, the times of my darling wife are in thy hands. Thou wilt do what's very best for her and for me, whether life or death. If it may be raised up yet again, my precious wife, thou art able to do it, though she was so ill. But howsoever thou dealest with me, only help me to continue to be perfectly satisfied with thy holy will. The mark In the midst of the darkest moments of this man's life, he was able to hold on to two things. God is good. And God is powerful. Are we able to do the same thing? Jesus again says to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he asks her in a very important question, do you believe this? And I think that's the question I'd like us for, to consider today. Do you believe this? Do I believe this? Do we believe, not just in the resurrection in the future, but do we believe that Jesus is good? And Jesus is powerful in our lives today. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this passage of hope. We thank you for the fact that in the midst of life's darkest circumstances, you showed up on the scene showing that you are good, that you care for your children. And that you're also powerful. That you're able to speak the word and dead men and women come back to life. Lord, I don't know what everyone is going through today, people in this room, people listening online, but you do. Lord, in the midst of hardship, in the midst of difficult times, Lord, I pray that we would rely on you and trust in the fact that you are good, that even in those moments of pain, even in moments that maybe break your heart, that you're allowing these things to happen for our good, for your glory. And help us to know, Lord, and to trust in the fact that there's nothing that's too great for you. There's nothing that's outside of your control. There's nothing that catches you by surprise. You have no rival. You have no equal. There's no one who can stop you. Lord, may our hope be in your gospel. May our hope be in your cross and resurrection where you declared once and for all that you are good, you are powerful. Help us to live in that reality today